What's good, everybody? I'm John G. Stremski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episodes three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. Thanks for listening to Black on the Air. That is exactly what you're listening to. And I am the host, Larry Wilmore. Sorry for missing last week. Some of you that were expecting a pop. My whole like system here at home just broke down. My internet. I have no idea. It took like five or six days for it to get back going. So, unfortunately, we were down last week. But um, hopefully we'll be able to reschedule the guest that we had for last week. So... Very, very good guest, and I won't spoil it. I'll let you know in the coming weeks if we do it. I hate to mention guests before I actually have it recorded, because I don't know if I'm going to get them or not until really the last minute. I know it sounds weird, but I just like to make sure, because as soon as you say, yeah, I'm going to have so-and-so on, something happens, and boom, they're not on. But today, uh, our special guest is James Curtis. He is the author of a new biography um, one of my favorite comedians of all time, Buster Keaton. It is called Buster Keaton, A Filmmaker's Life. And for all you Keaton fans out there, man, this one goes into so much detail on Keaton. So many things that um, I didn't even know about. and really covers his whole life, which is great. And for those of you that are, maybe aren't familiar with Keaton, and especially you filmmakers out there, I know I get a lot of people who are filmmakers and are interested in filmmaking, whether from the writing or directing point of view or whatever, part of your education should include the work of Buster Keaton. Uh, and I think American Cinema Tech this week is showing uh, some of his films with uh, Mr. Curtis there signing books and stuff like that. So it's great. He's on, we talk about Keaton, and I kind of geek out on it because it's, it's one of my favorite topics. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy that. It's in the... Um, continuation of things on Larry's pod that Larry just likes, you know, and Buster Keaton films is one of them. So there you go. Another thing that Larry likes are the Rams. The LA Rams won the Super Bowl, you guys. Woo. I was so excited last week. I'm surprised I still have a voice. Um, As you know, I live here in Pasadena, California. I'm an L.A. Rams fan. I was a Rams fan since I was a kid. It was the first team that I actually rooted for. And, um, you know, my dad played uh, college football, and football was a big deal in our house. We had a lot of people who played sports in my neighborhood, too, who played ended up playing pro sports where I grew up. Sports was a big part of growing up for me. I played a lot of sports and uh, enjoyed it a lot. Football was the first sport that I kind of fell in love with. And the Rams were my team. And I always loved the Rams. And then the Rams left. They left. They went to St. Louis, you guys. And we had no team here for a while. And I remember I even talked to you guys about this maybe on my podcast or before. 
where for a while I had to adopt the Seattle Seahawks because we didn't have a team. The Rams were gone. And they even won it. They had the nerve to win a championship. Uh, I think it was in 99, uh, which was fun. It was very exciting. But since they were in St. Louis, it was kind of muted. So when the Rams came back a few years ago, I have to admit, I was a little coy about it. I'm like, well, we'll see, Rams. You know, you you left me. I didn't leave you. But we talked it through. You know, we uh, <laughs> we got over, let's say, our differences. And I'm happy to report that we're doing better than ever. Uh, but on a real note, this past year was extra special because um, I had an, you know, I, you guys know that my brother passed away last year. He was a big football fan, too. And I had an idea that, uh, the family could maybe go to the Rams game, my sisters and brothers and cousins and stuff, as a way to get together instead of always getting together for funerals and everything because we're at the height of the pandemic and all that crap. And unfortunately, then as I was, you know, formulating the idea, we lost my brother. So, of course, we all got together for a funeral. But we kept that idea. And so this whole season, this past season, We've been going to Rams games and having so much fun as a family and just spending just family time together, you know, just um, talking shit, you know, and and having fun rooting for the Rams. So, you know, it's interesting that a year later, um, almost a year to when my brother died, that the Rams ended up winning uh, the Super Bowl. And that was the whole reason that we got together. So it was extra special in that way, too. It wasn't just football. It turned out to be a great family thing. And I did go to the Super Bowl, um, and we had some fun. Um, just a few of us went to that, though. But that was still fun. It was it was great. Um, so there you go. It was a little personal thing I slipped in there. How do you like that? A little personal thing. But it was great. I just loved it. Speaking of COVID, you know, it feels like, once again, and we felt this way before, that we're coming out of it a bit. You know, a lot of the restrictions are easing up around the country. Um, the whole mask thing is still a big issue. Um, I still don't know why they have children masked at schools. It just doesn't make sense to me in the classroom. But they're easing up on some of that. Um, I'm not going to debate that right now. But, you know, it's something we can talk about at some point if people have some questions about it. It's just something I disagree with. I think it's an overreach. I get it in the beginning, but now with vaccines and everything, it just really doesn't make sense. But hopefully that's easing up. But I wanna, here's what I want to talk about. Now, I brought up the Kyrie Irving situation before, and now it has gotten to the point where it is really absurd. And I think people are coming around to my side because the first one I brought up, people are like, what are you talking about, Larry? And I'll, I'll reiterate it for those of you that weren't familiar with it. So Kyrie Irving, basketball player for the Brooklyn Nets. And Kyrie's kind of quirky. He's one of those real quirky people. I think it was a flat earther at one point. So he's he's not the most reliable person, you know, when it comes to information about things. And you don't want to put all your eggs in the Kyrie Irving logic basket, let's just say, you know. But in the case of COVID, it's very interesting because there's a lot of layers going on. So what happened was the NBA does not have a vaccine mandate okay players are allowed to get the vaccine or not but they do have a strict testing protocol and i believe that's correct because some players have decided not to get vaccinated and some players have you know but um one of the problems of not getting vaccinated as an nba player is you risk 
if you got COVID being isolated more severely than those who were vaccinated and possibly got COVID, things like that, you know. But a side effect of this was in the state of New York. Now, Kyrie Irving played for the Brooklyn Nets, who play in Brooklyn, of course. And in the state of New York um, last year, um, I forgot the name of the ordinance, but in order to, you couldn't go into any arena unless you were vaccinated, and that included the players. And since Kyrie Irving played for the Brooklyn Nets, he was not allowed, Is he, he didn't want to get vaccinated for whatever reasons. You know, And like I said, not the most reliable person. Whatever his reasons are, that's a whole different argument. You know, because personally, I would have, I got vaccinated. I'm vaccinated and boosted. I believe you should get vaccinated. I had a different view when it came to certain mandates. I don't think all mandates are created equally. Some, I think, are in overreach and some seem a little more reasonable to me. But this one, uh, just, you know, uh, excluded Kyrie from being able to play games in Brooklyn because of that mandate. You know, he couldn't go to the stadium in which he played in if he wasn't vaccinated. So a lot of people were mad at him, said he was selfish. How could he do this? Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he was allowed to play uh, in away games. Apparently, um, COVID couldn't follow him <laughs> on the away games. I don't know how that worked out. You know, but somehow it could find him in Brooklyn or whatever. Um, I always felt that it was ridiculous that, you know, the most important thing was not whether the player was vaccinated, but whether the player was positive or negative. You know, and since they're testing all the time, that's what you want to measure. Vaccination, at the most, vaccination protects the player, but it doesn't protect one player from the other player in the way that you would think or the way that it was presented. Um, because once we found out that vaccinated people could still get COVID and they could still pass COVID, it wasn't quite the way we imagined it in the beginning where it prevented you from even getting COVID at all, where it almost seemed like it was going to eradicate COVID. It didn't quite turn out that way as we learned about it, um, as we went on, but I did feel it was just an overreach to not allow this basketball player to play basketball. It just seemed weird, you know, when we have so many situations where we can drop our masks like in restaurants and things like that. Right. So whatever, a lot of people disagree with me, which is fine. You know, I don't mind that, but I just felt, you know, why are they picking on Kyrie Irving? That's his belief. He doesn't want to get vaccinated. We're allowed to have our beliefs about that. His belief, you know, he hasn't gone into detail about it. So I don't know why he really wants to get it, but you know, he was, a. I mean, he was really tech. Stephen A. Smith really went after him. You know, but, you know, so be it. A lot of people feel very passionate about that. You know, they were calling them selfish and all that, which, you know, one way to look at it, I suppose. So the issue now is why is New York, well, why are they still not allowing Kyrie to play in Brooklyn? Because as we found out recently, David, uh, Adam Silver, who is the commissioner of basketball, um, recently elucidated and why he didn't say this earlier i don't know that players uh, away players like players who are coming to play the brooklyn nets in brooklyn don't have to be vaccinated in order to play in the stadium but 
Kyrie Irving can't play because he's not vaccinated, even though they're playing in the exact same stadium. That makes, this is what I mean, you guys. It makes no sense at all. It is so arbitrary. How's COVID going to know? <laughs> How's COVID going to, is COVID being tricked in this instance? Why are you allowing players who aren't vaccinated play in there at all? If you're saying Kyrie Irving can't, it just doesn't make sense. It honestly is insane, you know? And I think New York needs to do the right thing and just say, you know what? All right, fine. You still have to be vaccinated if you want to attend. But for the players, we're making an, an exception. Because they do make exceptions for performers and, and players and things like that in these various things. And if you're saying that, also, if you're using, if you really do believe in the vaccines and believe that they're effective and work, and you're saying everybody that comes in has to be vaccinated, but this one guy is not. How is that person a threat to anyone if everyone is vaccinated? It does not make sense. It makes no sense. You know, I get it that he's maybe exposing himself more by not being vaccinated. But how is that a threat to everyone else if they're all vaccinated? It just doesn't make sense. Anyhow, you can go around in circles on this. But my whole point is it it's just so ridiculous, hypocritical, and it's way over the top at this point. <laughs> it's like free Kyrie Irving. And it puts me in a weird position. It's I'm not, you know, as I said, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not sticking up for him to go unvaccinated. I'm just pointing out the ridiculousness of this mandate. It makes no sense at all, you guys. And they really should just get rid of it, honestly. I don't even think they should make an exception at this point. Just get rid of the damn thing. It really doesn't make a point. It doesn't make any difference at this point, I think, personally. Um, And you may disagree with me, and that's okay. And, you know, feel free to tweet me about this, and we can have more discussions about it if you want the specifics of it. But I just think it's ridiculous. Speaking of things that are ridiculous, I usually don't like talking about Tucker Carlson too much just because he just... He just really bugs me. Um, he's just so beyond uh, just being wrong and just nasty and just ignorant and all these things that I feel like it's not worth it. But he said something the other day, which I thought was really ridiculous. He's He's been going after uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and... He has this nasty attack that he levels at her, and it's a very racist attack. And I always told you guys, I'll let you know when I think something is really racist that we should pay attention to. But it's this line of attack he has at AOC in particular that is, to me, not only racist, it really is the definer of white privilege. And what it is is that he likes to try to cancel out her identity and heritage based on the fact that he thinks she has a privileged life. Like to him, how can those two things exist? You can't be a person of color if you have a good life. <laughs> if, you have, if somehow your life is privileged, how can you be a person of color? That doesn't make sense to him. He, uh, he said he basically called her a white lady <laughs> or something like that. I mean, it's crazy, you guys, um, his attacks on her. And to me, he first of all, he's known nothing but privilege in his life, you know. Um, and what he's assuming is that if you're a person of color and if somehow your life is good, 
you have, number one, lost the ability to advocate for others who don't have a life as good as yours. Like, how dare you advocate for people who don't have it like you do? But isn't that the one of the points of of making it so you can reach down and help other people? Isn't that the point of running for office? Because now you're in a privileged position and you can help those who aren't in a privileged position. Isn't that a point of when you make a lot of money, when you give to charity and you do charitable things to help people that haven't made a lot of money? I mean, the whole point of advocacy is that you are in a point to advocate. It, it, I never have understood this argument that once you're at a certain point, you're not allowed to speak up for those who aren't at that point. Isn't that what is remembering where you came from is all about? It's just crazy. And uh, also the fact that they may have a privileged life, which is debatable or not or whatever. And, you know, if AOC has made it to a certain point or has money or if her parents have money, you know, or whatever, I ain't mad at her. Why should I be mad at her? Why should anybody be mad at her or hold anything against her? But to him, that means she's essentially white. And I've heard this argument before. I've heard it from people before. Like once you've made it to a certain point in your life, well, you're not black anymore. You know, you're not a person of color. You, I mean, you're basically white. What do you have to complain about? <laughs> ah, Guys, this is people admitting that there is white privilege. They have, they have admitted it. What you're telling me is if you have a privileged life, you're white. That yes, thank you. That is what white privilege is. It's a privileged life. It's not privilege in that sense necessarily. You know, privilege with money and everything is a different type of privilege. White privilege doesn't mean that, you know, but it certainly is the ability to have this type of opinion about people that kind of exposes, you know, how you think about the world, you know, how you view the world. You getting uppity, you got some money. You're trying to be one of us. You're breaking into this exclusive club. It's so revealing. It is so, so fucking revealing. Um, <laughs> about the exclusivity of how this person thinks about the world and who belongs in what parts of the world. You know, you don't belong there, person of color. Uh-uh. You're an imposter. You're fa you're, you don't belong. This privilege thing is only available to white people. And by the way, since I'm white, I can act like I'm snotty about it. And I can act like uh, those people are out of touch, even though Tucker Carlson is the most privileged person in the world, too, which is crazy. It is. It just makes my head explode. There was a joke I said years ago, and I think I've said it in here, where I was talking about Obama and I was pointing out that to me, one of the most revolutionary things about Obama is that the world gets a little taste of black privilege, you know, where a black person gets to have some privilege and some authority. And that kind of makes people a little uncomfortable. They're not used to that. People aren't used to black privilege and it's becoming more of a thing, you know, POC privilege, you know, having station in the world, having authority in the world not needing something from white people or the white establishment, you know, can make people uncomfortable. They're not used to. And so I said with Obama, 
you know, if you don't think you have a problem with black privilege, take the first class test. And the first class test basically is you walk through first class and first class is pretty much packed, you know, and you go, oh, first class is packed today. You know, that's the most thing you think, you know, first class has like mainly white people in it, let's say. You walk through first class, mainly white people. You just go, oh, first class is uh, full. Okay. Too bad I'm not sitting in first class. Whatever. But if you get on a plane and you walk through first class and it's all black people in first class, packed with black, and it's a big first class section, not just like like six seats. Let's say it's one of those 20 seat first class (laughs) sections and it's just black to black. You know, I don't care who you are. Most people are going to go, whoa. Wow, there's a lot of black people in first class today. Where, what's happening? Is this going to Jamaica? What? Am I in the wrong? Excuse me, am I in the wrong plane? I don't understand this. Why are black people? How did they get all this privilege? <laughs> people don't understand. Yes, black people can fly first class. You guys, we can do it too. You know, but uh, there's always that conversation about who is privilege for. And by the way, when you have that conversation, guess who has the privilege when you're having that conversation? Uh, and a lot of uh, of coming from that point of view, this is something I talked about once, Tim. You know, this has something to do with, I don't know if privilege is the right word, but let's call it the privilege point of view, maybe. Um is that you don't always see the world the way that people that don't have that privilege see it, you know, or you don't always recognize those people who are doing other things unless somehow they were in your world, you know. And the New York Times said something that made me think of this earlier, where they were talking about the election of Trump and the issues around it. And I I can't remember who wrote this, but they said, I don't think that this is a quote. I don't think that anybody had their arms wrapped around the mood of the country that allowed for the election of Donald Trump, including us talking about the New York Times. I don't think people, including the New York Times, quite had a handle on the anger, the amount of racial animosity. I don't think any of us thought that Donald Trump was going to be elected president. Anybody who says they did, I don't buy it. Wrong, 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 wrong. Not just me. But on my television show, The Nightly Show, which was on during that time, a year before Trump was elected, I predicted that Trump was elected. And I went into detail about the reasons why. And I didn't just do it on one episode. For an entire year, guys, we had, and not that they, I'm not saying the New York Times had to see my show, The Nightly Show, but the fact that it was out there is more of what I'm talking about, because I wasn't the only one talking about this. We had a segment called the unblackening <laughs> about this need to to take a mulligan with our black president as if he never happened. <laughs> you know, let's let's unblacken this whole White House of the world, you know, that this president has given us. A lot of it was my comment on, you know, how they were acting to, you know, the left and what the left was doing too. But you know, our segment was actually called the unblackening. We covered this shit in detail, show after show after show. You can go on YouTube and you can find all the receipts. We called it the unblackening. We talked about Trump all the time. I mentioned many times. We 
talked about this shit in real fucking time, New York Times. We talked about it contemporaneously, not in the rear view. We talked about it in the windshield, not in the rear view. Now, you niggas, years later, now you Columbus this shit and act like, oh, we discovered that there's racial animosity. Fuck you, motherfuckers. We talked about that shit. You're going to Columbus this now, you know. Ugh. These are the things. This is this is part of what privilege is to, you know. If we have this opinion, it, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't exist out there. It's not valid. It has to be validated, you know. Unless we thought of it. Sorry. Sorry, ladies. It's not validated. Anyhow, just one example. I don't want to go too much on that tangent. I got nothing against the New York Times. You know, I read the New York Times. I like many of the people over there. But this is a bigger issue of about many times how our shit is just fucking invisible. <laughs> fucking invisible. And I don't even want to make it, like I said, about just the nightly show. Because there are so many people who contribute that type of opinion at the time and it just goes unnoticed it doesn't it doesn't cause a blip on many different issues so there you go all right that's all i got uh can't get too upset today it's a beautiful day and um and we have a fun show for you coming up so all you film fans sit in and let's talk about buster keaton be right back this episode is brought to you by hyundai what does your next drive look like running between meetings, maybe a getaway with the whole family. Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, guys, this is the year of Larry Treats. For you guys these are the the things that i told you that i love that i'm interested in and there's no bigger representation of that than today's show our guest has written some really interesting bios of people from preston sturgis who's also one of my favorites wc fields spencer tracy um he really goes into great depth on all of these subjects but the piece de resistance now <laughs> is buster keaton a filmmaker's life by the one and only James Curtis. Jim, welcome to Black on the Air. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you, Larry. I'm happy to be here. I'm a huge fan of Keaton. My Keaton journey started in college where a friend of mine was really into Keaton and he had 16 millimeter prints of, uh, you know, some of his uh, shorts and that kind of stuff. And I think the first thing I saw was our hospitality. I'm like, how have I missed Buster Keaton's? <laughs> like, how did I miss this? And I immediately, and what happens when you're a Keaton fan is you fall in love with Buster Keaton. You don't just like him. You really fall in love with him. It becomes a love affair that lasts forever. You know, you go down a rabbit hole and you just become enamored with him. Is that kind of what happened with you? Probably in a different way, but did you fall in love with Keaton? Uh, yeah, and actually before college, in my case, because uh, back in the early 60s, you saw Buster Keaton on television a lot. And um, so I initially was uh, introduced to him on TV with his old TV show, the, the one that was done on film in the early 50s. It wasn't a good show, but his face was memorable. And I saw it every Saturday morning, I think it's seven o'clock at um, KNXT. And then he was in It's a Mad World. Uh, mad, 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 mad world. And he was in the Beach Party films. And he was on Ed Sullivan. And you saw him a lot of different places. And uh, 
So I became used to him, but I had no real idea that he was such a great silent filmmaker. That came later. And uh, that's ultimately my fascination with him. He was not like any of the other great silent comics, very different from Chaplin, very different from Harold Lloyd. Um, not as commercially popular as those two guys, but yeah, he had a very fierce and devoted following. And uh, here we are now more than half a century after his death. And he's probably a bigger star than he was ever in his lifetime. It's really amazing. Why Why did you want to write about Keaton? Like, what was the thing that you said, you know, at this, this, because there have been books about Keaton. Why did you want to weigh in on this? Well, there were three previous biographies and all three of them had problems let's say uh the best of the bunch was the first one which was called keaton by rudy blesh and that was done with buster's cooperation but rudy blesh was really only interested in the silent period about 1930 or so uh his interest drops off and so uh the second half of his life gets covered in one perfunctory chapter and uh Buster had a lot going on the rest of his life. He had some great challenges and also some great uh, highlights. And uh, so that was a frustration. But Rudy Blesch was a good writer. He knew vaudeville intimately. And uh, he was a guy that uh, was well suited to do it. But uh, as I said, he did an incomplete job. The second one, which came in 1979, was by the late Tom Dardis. And he had a a shelf full of books he had written that all pertained to alcoholism in one way or another. He was an alcoholic himself. And so it was the booze that interested him with Keaton. And yeah, I read the Dardis book. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And I was convinced also that Dardis really didn't appreciate Keaton as a comedian. He was interested in the alcoholism. And also he was seemingly incapable of writing a paragraph without at least three careless errors in him. And uh, so it was a difficult book to get through. He had some new information, but he didn't seem to know exactly what to do with it. So that was never a very satisfactory experience either. The third one was uh, published in 1995, Keaton Centenary. And uh, it was by an, a writer named Marion Mead. And again, I think that she took it as an assignment and she really didn't have a passion for Buster. So she really didn't understand. And perhaps, in my opinion, maybe didn't even find him funny. Uh, came up with some odd theories like Buster was illiterate, that he was an abused child, et cetera. And so when you, when you enter into a subject like that, you don't let the research lead you. Rather, you start to cherry pick the research to reinforce your your perceptions of what 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 the story really was and kind of a confirmation bias book yeah yeah and so so that's what was in the background when i started this one and, and so i wanted to i wanted to sit out to do the definitive biography yeah and a lot of the book i don't know if it feels like a setting the record straight but you really uh give us an interesting portrait especially of the early years of key mm -hmm. which i've never read so much about that like normally that's very perfunctory yeah he he worked with his with his dad and mom on broadway in the three keatons and that's pretty much all you hear about it what was the research process like like how did you find out all this information that you have in the book about those early days well for instance the new york society for the preservation and the uh, protection of children still exists and they have the archives going back to the days with joe keaton so i was able to go there to their office in new york city and uh, handle the letter that Joe Keaton wrote uh, to Elbridge Geary back when, and uh, when he's first proposing to put Buster on the New York City stage. And, and how old was Keaton at that age? 
Uh, five years old. I was going to say, was he three? Or? Yeah, no. Well, he he started he started doing the act on kind of a, a basis when he was three, but he became a full time member of the act at the age of five, and yeah. and he kept telling people, or but Joe kept telling people that Buster was actually seven or eight or nine years old, depending what he could get away with. So uh, uh, Buster was always younger than he was supposed to be, but. Uh, uh, he quickly became the focus of the act and also the star of the act. The act was never very good with just the two parents. It was a weird hybrid of of acrobat stuff and music and jokes and things like that. That's exactly right. It was a weird hybrid and and uh, it, it evolved. And Joe got the idea of making Buster up to look just like him, which mm-hmm. means a, a, a very broad, rough Irish character. And uh, so Joe would get on stage and he would do uh, his act, which was, or start to do his act, which was, uh, involving a table that he would get he would jump up onto the table and then he would go through various graceful moves and and jump from one chair to another and it was an odd act it was a, a class of act that was known at the time as silence and fun and joe was never very silent unfortunately he always had to talk to the audience and the criticism from critics at that time uh, they they urged him to talk less and uh, myra would sing i guess she had a passable singing voice the the mother and uh so as it evolved, Joe would Joe would come out, start to do his act, and then Buster would creep out from the wings, usually with a broom in his hand. And from behind, he would sweep the broom across the table and knock his father on his on his face. And uh, the father would chase him, and he'd run off the stage. And so the battle was joined. And so over the next fifteen minutes or thereabouts. Uh, Buster would do awful things to his father and his father would say to the audience, Buster must mind. I have to make him mind. And so it became kind of a parody of uh, child rearing at the turn of the century. And so Joe would pick Buster up by the nap of the neck and just heave him into the scenery. So he would take Buster and just throw him <laughs> into the scenery. That's crazy. Well, it was crazy. It was something that the audiences loved at that time. And but but the thing about it is it was a comic acrobatic act and right. how to land and people would look at it and be find it funny. And at the same time, they were perplexed because the child was perhaps in danger doing this. And right. in reality, Buster was a natural acrobat. He knew how to land. Uh, his his costume was padded properly. So. Uh, the things that you see later in his films where he does some remarkable stuff with his body. He learned that on stage when he was a young kid and uh, was able to master some of the most uh, complex and uh, outrageous physical stunts and walk away completely unhurt. Is it true that, uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned this in your book, but I know they worked with Houdini several times and he was like a friend of theirs. Is it true that Houdini named him Buster? No. It's not. That's a good a good story. It came up in the 20s from a publicist. But um, I went back and looked. Houdini was touring Canada at the time. So he was nowhere near Buster. Uh, actually, it was an old uh, music hall actor who was running the medicine show that the Keatons were with at the time. And Buster was prone to falls. And one day he came bouncing down the stairs and uh, uh, plopped on his face. And, and uh, the, this, this guy said, wow, what a Buster. And that meant a uh, flat fall. And it was British slang is what it was. And uh, Joe embraced it and he was Buster Keaton thereafter, but it was not Houdini that did that. Did it surprise you at all? I mean, we all know as fans of Keaton, 
as you say, you know, how much um, stunt work was important to what he did. But did it surprise you exactly how much punishment his body took? I mean, it was I, when you read it all, it's like, wow, how did he ever even make it out of his 20s to even make movies? His body took a tremendous amount of punishment. Well, uh, again, it was amount it, amount of it, it was illusion. You know, it was it, it was supposed to look worse than it, it was actually. And uh uh, and of course, they have the pit band to emphasize uh, his landings and, and the like. So uh, uh, it wasn't as bad as it seemed. But uh, he was constantly they were after him constantly because they thought that Buster was a an abused child, although it was repeatedly proven that he wasn't. Uh, There's a famous story about him going before the mayor of uh, one city and he stripped down to his underwear just to show that there were no bruises. Uh, lacerations of any sort and that's how he proved that uh he was not hurt during the course of the act but uh he, he got all kinds of nicknames like the the human rubber ball and uh the human mop was another one they called him sometimes because uh, he spent so much time on the floor of the stage but uh it became one of the great standard acts in vaudeville in the the first decade of the 20th century they were very successful um by the time they were done how much of uh uh, showbiz did you learn about doing this too because it's funny that is to me a period that we I feel we don't really know a lot about that end of That's the true. 19th century pre-1930 you know, type of era in showbiz. We, I feel we know flashes of it. That's that's true. Vaudeville was remarkably influential. The People's Theater, as they called it, and uh, it came up after the end of the Civil War. And uh, and, they, and it was all over America. Yeah, it, it was. It, but it started in beer halls because uh, they wanted entertainment to draw the customers in. And uh, so it was very informal at first, but eventually it graduated to the point where their whole theater is seating several thousand people who... Uh, were devoted to the vaudeville uh, stage, the vaudeville circuits. And uh, so you had a tremendous number of people came up in vaudeville who came up in burlesque or uh, the medicine shows, which is the lowest rung on the ladder uh, where Buster was born into in 19, uh, 1895. So a lot of the people later populated uh, the legitimate stage, radio, silent films, uh, and eventually television came up in vaudeville. In fact, Bob Hope, I think it was, who said... When vaudeville died, the box they put it in was television. Yeah, yeah, and and many forms that were popular disappeared too. Some like, you know, you talk a little bit about the the uh, minstrel show, which you know appeared in one of his movies, and you know now, of course, you can't do that type of no. thing. But <laughs> you know, where that's where blackface, you know, comes from that minstrel show. But people don't realize. There should probably be a special done about this, how popular the minstrel show actually was. I mean, it was a staple of like entertainment that not just white performers did, but black performers also uh, did minstrel shows. I think Ben Johnson or what was the comedian's name? He was very famous for doing a, a minstrel act. If you would, you know. Yeah, there, there were there were black performers. Uh, the light skinned ones would black up famously enough and uh, because because they didn't look black enough uh, to audiences of the time. But but uh, around the turn of the century, a lot of comedians, if you look back at the vaudeville uh, bills of those times, they were ethnic stereotypes of one sort or another. We were a nation of immigrants. And so you had uh, Jewish characters. You had uh, Dutch was popular at that time. Uh, Swedes, uh, Italian, Irishmen were very belligerent. Uh, 
but it was kind of a shorthand with the audience. If you weren't known to an audience, uh, you had 12 minutes to make a, make an impression and get off stage, mm -hmm. get, get your next week's bill. And uh, uh, I think that uh, it, it would be an interesting study. I don't know if one's been done. I haven't seen it, but it has been. Um, it'd be an interesting study to go back and show how ethnic stereotypes that developed in popular culture during the great uh, migration, the uh, Ellis Island period of time where uh, uh, they followed through in popular culture into television and beyond, and they're still with us today. When you look at the Marx Brothers, even their act was kind of uh, born out of that with Chico doing his Italian accent. Yeah, Italians were always, uh, were always ice salesmen deliveries, and so... Uh, uh, Everybody had their cliche. And uh, so if you walked on stage and came out, uh, spoke an Italian accent, the audience knew what to expect. Mm. And and that was true of most of those guys back then. There's also a lot of, you know, Keaton came up at the beginning of motion pictures, which really changed the country. Mm. 1917. That's such an interesting period. You know, that's almost, you know, we just went through that centennial of us having this pandemic and the Spanish flu happening back then, you know, and uh, such an interesting period. Like that period alone too deserves like a book, you know, in my mind. Oh yeah. And I love that you cover Keaton, which isn't talked about too much too, where he actually served in World War One. Mm -hmm. That's true. Also toward the end of World War One, uh, fortunately he didn't see any combat. He got close to it. And uh, uh, because his, his film legacy would have been rather sparse otherwise. Yes. But, uh, oh, Burt Williams is who you were thinking of. Burt Williams, yeah. I was thinking of but Burt Williams is who I was trying to think yeah, of. Right? Yeah, uh, but uh, uh, anyway, when he got into it, he really didn't know much about it. But Buster Keaton kind of had the mind of a civil engineer. He was fascinated by the mechanics of filmmaking. And in a way, the Chaplin was not. I knew uh, a guy who was an assistant director for Chaplin. And he said, Chaplin didn't know the difference between a one-inch lens and a two-inch lens. He knew nothing about the camera. Buster could take a camera apart and put it back together. Uh, and so he had this instinctive sense that, well, let's see, uh, what can we do with this camera that we can't do on stage? And that informed a lot of his stuff. Uh, a lot of comedians came from the stage, and, well, Roscoe Arbuckle being one of them, for instance. And a lot of what he did on film was stuff that he could do on stage. Buster's goal was not to do things he could do on stage. He wanted to do things he could only do on screen. And that's, that's what propelled him. And, and when he did things like uh, the Playhouse, where he had nine of himself on stage, and he was the entire audience and the pit band and the stagehands and the person taking the tickets and all of that, uh, that was something you couldn't do on stage. Yeah, I feel like Keaton understood the importance that cinema had you know, immediately and uh, kind of combined a lot of elements. Uh, you mentioned Roscoe Arbuckle, which some people have heard the name Fatty Arbuckle was kind of his nickname. Another uh, undeserved subject, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And it's really an interesting figure. He really kind of taught Buster everything he needed to know about making films and was, was very popular at the time, too. Can you talk about Fatty a little bit and how popular he was in his day? Well, he was he was thought to be at one time second only to Chaplin. Uh, that's how big he was. He was internationally popular. And um, when Joe Skank, who uh, started to move into films from vaudeville himself, married Norma Talmage, who was a going to be a big star in the 1920s. Uh, he wanted a comedy component to his uh, program, if you will. Uh, so he hired Fatty Arbuckle away from Max Senate. Arbuckle wasn't particularly happy with Senate. 
paid him a lot of money and uh, asked him to make a series of short films, two reelers as they called them, essentially 20 minute films, comedies. And Max Sennett had done like the Keystone Cops and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and Chaplin started with Max Sennett as well. But what Arbuckle proceeded to do was create some extremely popular short films and right from the get-go, but it's almost happenstance uh, that Buster Keaton was invited in to appear in the first film, which was called The Butcher Boy. And uh, and he liked it so much, he didn't care what they were going to pay him. He, he was fascinated by the camera. He was fascinated by the process. And it's interesting, you see him in these first couple of films, and he's pretty much doing his vaudeville shtick, which was uh, elaborate falls. There's there in the second film he does. He rides a bicycle into a clothesline that catches him right underneath the chin and pulls him backwards off the bike. And uh, that's the sort of stuff he would do on stage. But uh, very quickly he started to uh, explore the outer limits of the camera and the screen. And uh, by the time he got to California in late 1917, he was working with whole uh, trains you know, out in the desert. And uh, Arbuckle was going along with him because he was a, a great source of material and inspiration. And Keaton said at one point, it occurred to me, I was uh, Arbuckle's entire gag department. And between the two of them, they created these films. And he kind of uh, started to establish a relationship with the audience uh, during that yeah. time. People were looking forward to him. <laughs> That's my dog. Name is named Buster after Keaton, by the way. Oh, kidding. I didn't know that. Great. And my son is also a big Keaton fan. And when oh, we said, he's, well, which we know, in today. he came up with Buster. That's great. Not Busta Rhymes, as some people think, because then he did Busta. <laughs> <laughs> but Buster, so now everybody knows, was named after Buster Keaton. There you go. Well, it, it, that, that's for that's one for the book. So we were into that period with uh, Roscoe, Arbuckle, Al St. John in that period, where yeah. Keaton was developing a relationship with the audience. And also, was it yeah. during this time where he really kind of became that stone face that we know when he was working with Arbuckle? Did that happen more when he started doing his... Uh, sort really of, yeah. Uh, well, it, yes and no. Um, uh, he was conscious of developing a persona for that the audience would recognize. And uh, part of that was the pork pie hat and part of that was the whole demeanor. Um, but if you look at the Arbuckle films, I think in every one of them that he was in, uh, there's a point at which he smiles or laughs. Uh -huh. uh, but right. a lot of the time he does have the impassive face. And uh, when he got into his own films, he stopped smiling. He stopped laughing. He got the idea very correctly that uh, uh, he, he had developed kind of a unique look and he would uh -huh. play on that look. And so that's when he became the great stone face in effect. And his two reelers. Yeah. And it, it's funny because um, I did this interview years ago. Uh, it was for this documentary about American comedy. We're talking about, Keaton and Chaplin. And I always said, like, Chaplin was uh, a funny thing in a normal world, and Keaton was a normal thing in a funny world. Well, that's a good way of putting it. Where he was, he was this very still thing, and the world around him was crazy. And everything he did had a certain demented logic to it. Yeah. He, he wasn't just reactive in the sense of Chaplin would kick somebody in the derriere. He, right, he was, right, 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 right. He was, he was a guy who would figure out if he built a boat for instance, in his basement and then needed to pull it out. He was going to figure out a way to do that. Now, it might destroy the whole house in the process, but uh, but he was going to get it out of there. And that seemed to be to audiences and critics of the time, 
uh, a new way of looking at comedy. It wasn't just running cars off the road just for the sake of it. it was, there was reasoning behind it, and the audience could buy into that logic, uh, defective though it may be. So he, he represented a move away from the kind of keystone slapstick that was very rowdy, uh, low class in a sense, uh, uh, dangerous, but it it didn't have the larger idea around it that Buster invested his films with. He was kind of absurdist when you think about it, you know, especially visually. Even when you look at his first two really one week, I mean, that house is really an absurdist painting almost, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's surreal. It uh, it's cubist. It's it's it like uh, it's like out of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you know. It's one of these things that just is expressionism run wild and. Uh, and that all comes from the logical uh, development that uh, the numbers on this kit home got changed. And so he could not put it together correctly by following the numbering. And so uh, you end up with a house that has a mind of its own. But it kind of sets us up, though, for this ride we're going to be on with Buster Keaton in some ways, you know, that we're going to we're going to see something a little bit out of the out of the norm. That's true. Well, you know, he'd made a previous film that he decided to shelve because it wasn't strong enough to introduce his series. So one week was actually the second film he uh, started and directed. And uh, it was released on September 1, 1920. And so we were originally thinking when doing this book that we'd go out in September of 2020 uh, at his centenary as a filmmaker. And uh, things got in the way, as you may remember. And so uh, we're just getting it out now. Well, it it makes sense, I think, to me. So how many two releases did Keaton end up making? 19. So he made 19. And, um, you know, many would argue... I think the critics of the day too. Some of his best work was in those two reelers. When you just yeah. think of just the strict comedy of it all and the absurdism of it all, what what do you consider like his his best? Especially if people are coming to Keaton Fresh, I think they should start with his two reelers before they get into the into the features. I I, I agree. Some of them are second tier uh, as opposed to first tier, but uh, the, the best ones are incomparable. And uh, you know, you, you could start with something like Cops for instance, which takes a premise, a very simple premise, and just develops it to its logical extreme. And yeah. by the end of it, the entire police force is chasing them. The boat is one like one week, and that's the reason we're running them together, uh, is th in both cases, you have this great, believable married couple who embark on a project. And in the first film, it's to build this house, this kid home. And in the second one is to build and live on a boat. And uh, so you take that very simple premise and what can happen, what can go wrong and, uh, and how do you apply Buster's logic to what happens and what goes wrong. And uh, so, so I think audiences got used to that, but part of Buster also was, and this is where the blank pan comes into play even more. He invited the audience into the process. You, you had to work with him a little bit in order to enjoy his uh, comedy completely. And, uh, there were people who wanted to be given everything on a platter and Chaplin served that up. I mean, Chaplin told you exactly when to laugh and what to feel in any particular moment. And Buster, Buster was period as well. more ambiguous. Yeah. And, um, and I think, I think that's the, the key to it in a lot of ways. People felt very strongly about Buster when they felt strongly about uh, comedy at that time uh, because he was somebody that invited you in.
you were part of the process. That's interesting. I don't know if I've ever heard it put like that. Yeah, he had a fierce following then too, but it's funny when I look when you and I love how you cover like the the receipts and how much the films made and when you compare it to some of the other things that it is interesting as funny as he was, he wasn't the most popular, you know, during those days. There was a lot of competition for that. Yeah, there was, and he was arguably more popular in Europe at times than he was in the US. Uh Somehow, uh, Western Europe uh, cued into him a lot more than perhaps the American heartland did. But uh, uh, Buster was different from Harold Lloyd, who was kind of the old American go-getter. And Chaplin was always a creature of Victorian London, uh, regardless of where he was in terms of the setting. So so Buster occupied a unique place. But uh, uh, one of the reasons I got into uh, the details of the business and what the films made was because the legend had grown up over a long period of time that Buster's feature films were not profitable. And that's why he was handed over to MGM when he was. And that's not true. They were all profitable. Uh, they were not as profitable as uh, perhaps the Chaplin films or the Harold right. Lloyd films. But Lloyd they all was, made money. Yeah, they all made money. And uh, But the investors uh, wanted out at a certain point. There was a lot of exposure involved when he was making a film like The General, which cost about $450,000. And uh, they had to wait to get their money back. And if it was a flop, they didn't get their money back. So uh, uh, when talkies started to come in and prices and, and expenses went up tremendously, talkies were a lot more expensive to make than silent films. Um, they didn't want to take the risk. And that's why he ended up at MGM when he did. Okay, before we get to MGM... Um, I do want to go back to Arbuckle a bit, because for those of you that aren't familiar with Fatty Arbuckle, there was a major trial in which he was accused of, I think, raping a woman and killing a woman actually, and, and killing her. And uh, it was the sensational as the word that they used to use in trial of that time. 1921, I believe it was. 1921. There were three trials uh, up in San Francisco, and uh, he was finally acquitted in the third trial, but uh, the first two resulted in hung juries, and uh, it killed his career. He, he was a sad figure after that. And he and Buster were very close. Did it affect their relationship at all? Only to the extent that Buster wanted to do whatever he could for him. Uh, at one point, he invited Arbuckle in to direct uh, the film that became Sherlock Jr., which is one of Buster's great classics. And uh, Arbuckle was so, let's see, wrecked, frazzled by the experience that uh, he really wasn't effective as a director at that point. Uh, but Buster Buster was on a campaign to get Arbuckle work. Um, Arbuckle couldn't go in front of the camera. He did direct films under a pseudonym and uh, managed to support himself, but uh, he was not good with money. And uh, the irony of Arbuckle was that uh, when talkies came in, he got a contract to make short subjects for Warner Brothers. And they were so popular and well done that uh, uh, Warner Brothers came back to him and gave him a contract to make a feature comedy. He went out and celebrated that night, went home, went to bed, and died of a heart attack. Wow. Interesting, you know. And you could, he basically was canceled at that time, the way we talk yeah. about Absolutely. Now. The women's clubs were very powerful back then. And uh, if they disapproved of you, you were out of the film business. Right. Then that was it. Keaton's style of making a film to me ultimately kind of contributed to his demise and being able to make films ironically um because many times he 
worked with the faintest notion of a story. You know, he never worked with the script. He would he would kind of know the ending and the beginning, and he said, "We'll work out the middle." I think you mentioned, yeah, and you know that worked great for him because he's a genius. You know, <laughs> he can <laughs> he can keep all that in his head. But once he has made his best films, he goes to MGM, right? And and the general didn't quite do the general, which is considered his his best by many critics and that sort of thing. Even though people have their favorites, I think my favorite is probably Steamboat Bill. But uh, General was was disappointing to a lot of people. And did Keaton lose some leverage after the general? in terms of what he was able to do, or did it take a while for that to happen? Not not to get down in the weeds too much, but the problem with a film like The General, again, the company that was called Buster Keaton Productions Incorporated was originally the company that was put together to make Fatty Arbuckle shorts in 1917. And there were 10 stockholders. Irving Berlin was one of them. And um, Joe Skank, his brother, uh, who was in charge of Lowe's Incorporated, uh, the parent company of MGM, Nicholas Skank, uh, a few others. Uh, but it was a tight-knit group. And the deal for the short subjects was they would put maybe $30,000 into a two-reel comedy. And when they delivered the negative to the distributor, the distributor would reimburse them their cost. So there wasn't a lot of risk involved. And then they just split up the profits. When Buster went into features in 23, that reimbursement went away. So all of a sudden, they were having to come up with more money, fronting more money, and then they had to wait for the actual box office returns to get their money back. Um, and so the general cost more than any other Buster Keaton picture up to that time. It was, like I said, $400,000 plus $100,000. And uh, so the, the the exposure was too great. And with talkies coming in, they said, okay, we can't do this anymore. At the same time, um, MGM was saying, in effect, they didn't have a star comedian. Uh, it was not really a studio that was constituted to encourage comedians like Buster Keaton. Uh, and they said, okay, we can do these a lot cheaper because we have a system in place. And so we'll take on Buster Keaton. We'll slice the budget of his films you know, by a third and make them more profitable. And so he had a very good supervisor for his first film, which is called The Cameraman. And it's a very good film, as it you is. know. Uh, he did one more silent feature with them, and then they wanted to put him in talkies. And MGM was a producer's studio. And the producer that was in charge of the Buster Keaton films was Irving Thalberg's brother-in-law, a man named Larry Weingarten. And Larry Weingarten had no no head for comedy, especially the kind that Buster Keaton purveyed. Of course, that's the person you want to put in charge of. Exactly, Keaton. exactly. So, uh, and Mayer, who ran uh, the outfit, uh, Buster was com convinced had no sense of humor whatsoever. And so this is the environment that Buster Keaton was dropped into. And they had a system in place. Buster was used to going around shooting things and putting it in front of an audience. They make notes, go back out, reshoot more, et cetera, et cetera. The cameraman went all over the place in terms of scheduling. It cost more than it was budgeted for, though not that much more. I think it went about 30000 over. It was profitable, ultimately. But uh, at MGM, they could make a film for half the price that a Buster Keaton comedy costs with somebody like Greta Garbo or Lon Chaney and uh, make twice as much money in terms of profit. 
And so they're looking at this and saying, why are we putting up with this anyway? We can make more money if, if, if Keaton is brought under control. And so that was their mantra. They're going to bring Buster. They're going to make Buster mind, as Joe Keaton used to say. And that was that was the beginning of the end. Let's take all the things that made him special and take them away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's let's take let's take this asset and destroy anything that made him desirable to own at one point. Yeah, it really is crazy because that pretty much does in Buster Keaton. That's absolutely true. A whole confluence of events. Talk, he's coming in. He doesn't have freedom anymore. And the audience, it seems to me. I feel like they almost forget about him overnight. Well, when when that happened, when he finally was fired from MGM, Thalberg, who was his protector, uh, had a heart attack and he was gone for ten months. And yeah. Mayor lost no time in firing Buster Keaton, who who would, who had been drinking. Uh, his marriage had gone fallen apart at that point, and uh, a lot of troubles, money troubles, etc. And Mayor was not going to put up with that, so uh, he fired Buster. And Buster the really hit rock bottom in 1935 when he was admitted to a mental institution in a straitjacket. Wow. And at, was it after then that he started to write gags where he got a job writing gags again? Was it after that point? Yeah, he, he, he went back on screen in short subjects uh, for an outfit called Educational at $5,000 a movie, which was good money back then. And uh, because they were shot in four days. Uh, and he did very good work. I had not seen any of the educational shorts until I started work on this book, and I watched them in the order in which they were made. And occasionally you can tell the Buster's been drinking, but not often. And um, some of them are very, very good, and they show what Buster Keaton could do with a talking screen when he was left alone. And that's the key. He was not left alone at MGM. He was left alone and respected at educational. It shows in the work. He probably did... Uh, 18 or 20 shorts for educational. Then he went to Columbia and that was... And what year was this approximately? Well, he did the educationals between 34 and 37. He went to Columbia in 1939 at half the price that he was getting for educational films. Uh, So he was getting 2,500 to film at uh, Columbia. And mostly he was directed by a man named Jules White, who was responsible for the Three Stooges. Three Stooges, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Jules White seemed to have only one way of working. It was not the way that Buster liked to work. And so some of the Columbia shorts are okay. Uh, one of them is very good, but it was not directed by Jules White. It was directed by a man named Del Lord, who was their best director. And he came from Senate. But Buster got to the point where he couldn't take it any longer. And after a series of shorts at Columbia, he, he resigned, refused to work, any, refused to make any more of them. And then he went back to MGM. He talked to his friend, Eddie Mannix, who was uh, his supervisor on Cameraman. And uh, he said, I need work. What can I do? And so they put him on at $100 a week. To, $100 a week. Yeah, to be a gag man. And he would go around and doctor uh films, primarily musicals, but not only, adding bits. Uh, he did a Clark Gable film. He worked 10, 10 days on uh, a Marx Brothers film called At the Circus. Mostly coming up with visual gags for Harpo. Uh, Groucho, I think, took a took a dislike to Keaton because uh, Keaton was not uh, he could not come up with a, a verbal comedy very well. He was not oriented that way, but he could come up with all sorts sorts of things for Harpo to do and say. Or, or Harpo didn't talk, but uh, uh, obviously, but uh, he was good with Harpo. But uh, he lasted ten days on that picture, so. Uh, 
but he, he came up with some good stuff and uh, he saved a couple of films that would have been guaranteed bombs and, uh, and worked a lot with Red Skelton. I was going to say, yeah, he did some work with Red Skelton in several of his films. And, and you can kind of see the influence in that early on and everything. But he still pretty much was uh, this captain of a ship without a ship, right? He's just kind of lost true. in terms of any appreciation for him. There was no, you know, medium yet by which people could appreciate any of that. And then television comes around and kind of uh, saves Buster Keaton. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he was he went on the Ed Wynn show in 1949, uh, which was uh, produced out here locally. And uh, other places saw it via means of kinescope before the, in the days before videotape and, and was uh, kinescope did they was that filming the video was that what kinescope yeah, they, they aimed to, essentially aimed a film camera at this tv screen aimed a film camera at the tv screen and that was called kinescope. that's how they preserved it so anything that you see of live television prior to 1956 was generally done by by kinescope and uh they, they exist today because of that. Uh, that includes a lot of the great live dramas like uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight, that sort of thing. Uh, anyway, Buster went on the Edwin show and they did a silent skit that was a tremendous hit. I mean, everybody wrote about it the next day. Um, and immediately Buster was uh, offered his own TV series. And so starting in December of 1949, the Buster Keaton show went on the air out here without a sponsor at first it was, it was sustaining and uh then they picked up a sponsor i think studebaker after the first of the year and every week buster was on channel 11 for half an hour and saying as little as possible and uh it was all physical comedy uh it was really tough for him because he he didn't have anybody that could write for him because everybody was oriented toward dialogue and Buster had to figure out his uh, physical business himself. There was nobody to right. do that anymore. All of, all of his gag men that he used back in the 20s were dead, or most of them were dead. And um, so after about 12 weeks, they couldn't do it anymore. He, he said, that I, this, is the, this is the easiest way to forest lawn that I can think of. And uh, so he, he walked out on the TV series, and they had to figure out what to do. They wanted him to do more. And that's when he did this film series, which they put on 35 millimeters, a single camera affair, though. He had no audience, which bothered him tremendously. And uh, it was a year before I Love Lucy, where Desi Arnaz figured out how to do a three camera production and in front of a studio audience and that nice television. Um, but that was a, that was later than this. And uh, so Buster walked away from television as the star of his own series. But he did a lot of guest shots and he did Ed Sullivan regularly. You just name it. Anytime he went to New York, he had 10, 15 guest shots he could do. He could do as many as he wanted. What's interesting about Keaton in this period, and this is, as you say, when you were introduced to him, is that he was known for being this old guy who was funny, you know, and, you know, he was in commercials, did that. I remember like Candid Camera, some of the things that he did in that. And he kind of had is this is kind of a different persona for him now and he's kind of appreciated for that but it's still that still wasn't the old buster keaton like when did when did people get reminded of that keaton again like when they say you know what you like this old guy but guess what this old guy was young at one point and yeah. he was fucking brilliant you guys yeah that's right and uh you know 
one of the ironies that I didn't realize until I started work on this was how hard it was to see his films in his lifetime. He died in February of, uh, of uh, 66. That's something we take for granted, you guys. We have Google now. We have the Internet. You know, there's so many ways to watch things. So here's this guy who's popular in his day, but nobody really knows who he is. That's right. And there's no way to really see what he's done, right? Yeah, it was the older generation that was telling you how great he was. I, yes, and you're like, whatever, whatever. If you watch the first um, time he was on Ed Sullivan, this is 1950, and Ed Sullivan is prepping his audience saying, now, you youngsters don't know who this guy is, but in my time, because he was a Broadway columnist back in the 20s, in my time, there was nobody greater or more respected than Buster Keaton. And, and I want you to meet him. And I want you to give him the biggest round of applause you've ever given anybody in your life. And he brought Buster Keaton out. And Buster did some great stuff on The Sullivan Show. His, his first sketch was not so hot. Uh, it was a fishing thing. And it was done with a little pond. And it, it just didn't work. But uh, he did some other terrific stuff that was adapted from things he did in film work. And uh, it went, that stuff went over very well indeed. Um, so, uh, but, but if you wanted to see Buster Keaton's features, you had to go to the Museum of Modern Art or some museum that had a print or could, could borrow a print. Uh, they were not available. Uh, they were tied up uh, with the remnants of the Buster Keaton production organization. So, uh, uh, there was no way to show them in regular theaters. And uh, this this was discouraging as can be to Buster because he knew his best work was there. Uh, and on the other hand, he, he would say, why are people interested in these films that are 40 years old, 30 years old? And uh, he thought they were passe in some respects because uh, there was no soundtrack to them that sort of thing mm -hmm. so he didn't really have an appreciation for it himself well i think it was just that he was he was trying to figure out how they would fit in and he couldn't see it necessarily but the the big turning point came in 1955 and buster had built this elaborate mansion for his first wife trying to keep his marriage together it didn't work but it was this enormous house way too big for his tastes and uh uh he built when it was being designed and it was being built during the time he was up in Oregon making the general um, they designed a film vault uh, into the side of a hill uh, near the swimming pool and in there he put prints of all of his great features and his favorite short subjects not all of them but but some of them and when he left that house he forgot all about them and for years and years they were not uh, on his mind and then one day he got a request from the Museum of Modern Art and they wanted to add, I think it was our hospitality to their collection. And they asked if he had a print and he said, no, but I know where there is one. And he went to James Mason's house, which used to be Buster Keaton's house. James Mason had bought the house. It was considered a white elephant in the late forties, paid something like $70,000 for it. And, uh, so Buster Keaton knocked on the door of his old house and he said uh, to whomever answered later turned out to be Kenneth Tynan, the, uh, the British uh, stage critic. And uh, he was staying with the Masons at the time and he answered the door and Buster Keaton explained who he was, not that he needed to explain himself to Kenneth Tynan. Uh, he said, uh, I, I would like to be able to retrieve one of my films from my vault. 
And uh, it was considered abandoned property. So legally, the owner of these films now was James Mason. Well, James Mason was there or he wouldn't come to the door or maybe he wasn't there. The, the, the accounts vary on that. But the answer came back and they said, no, you can't go to the vault and take the film out. And Buster Keaton said at that point, it's for the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I would love said. to see James Mason say that to me. I'm sorry, Buster, but I can't, <laughs> I can't let you into the vault to get to the, the cameraman. And what do you think you're doing? <laughs> That's terrific. I love that. So anyway, they relented. He went out, got the print, loaded into his car and took off again. But James Mason then had been made aware that the vault was there. It was hidden behind a, 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 some shelving. It, it was in kind of a garden area. So it was uh, where there was a potting bench and some shelves and that sort of thing. And so he, he called a, a locksmith and had the thing opened. And there was the complete Buster Keaton legacy. Wow. And, and not all of his films at that point were thought to exist. So, wow, for the first time, they were able to look and say, well, here's a print of three ages. You know, it was that was thought to be a lost film back then. So what happened ultimately was James Mason called the Motion Picture Academy and said, Hello, Academy. This is Mr. Mason calling again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. Oh, no, please, please. Do you do Claude Rains? Oh, yeah. No, Claude Rains. That's a great voice. I, I don't have that at my fingertips right now. But. Uh, anyway, um, Anyway, he got he got these films to the Academy and took himself a nice uh, tax deduction for the donation. Uh, so the Academy had these films and I was able to see the Academy's records on this donation, their file. And uh, they had to junk a bunch of the reels because they were deteriorating. These were nitrate prints. And oh, yeah. They couldn't probably restore them with the technology. Bank. No. Well, they, they could they could make safety copies uh some of the films were in very very good shape uh the general was in superb shape did they were these the no they were they were buster's the personal prints yeah they so were, they were first prints. generation okay. copies and uh so here was this this tremendous uh collection of films even in a partial sense uh and um uh, the academy wasn't sure what to do with them they didn't have much of an archival program back at that time um so then they got involved with um, uh, a man named Raymond Rohauer, who uh, uh, coveted the Keaton legacy and uh, partnered with Buster to collect his films and try to release them again and protect them in some way in the process and uh, make money off of them uh, as well. And it was Rohauer was a shady character, but in this particular case, I think it's safe to say that the films of Buster Keaton that we have today would not be as complete were it not for Raymond Rohauer. And uh, so that's kind of an odd, funny development in the third act of Buster Keaton's life. And uh, by the time of Keaton's death, Rohauer was making some of the Keaton films available again to revival houses and museums and the like. Uh, and uh, uh, it took him until the 1970s to fully own everything. But he finally ended up as the go-to guy for Buster Keaton's legacy. And Buster Keaton's widow, Eleanor, became part of that. And she made countless appearances around the world representing her late husband. Yeah, I had the honor of meeting her once at the old silent movie theater in Los Angeles. 
uh, at a Keaton screening. She's a lovely lady. She was, and I regret bitterly that I never met her. I could have easily, and I just couldn't foresee the fact that uh, 30 years later I would be uh, writing a book about him. I, I knew Viola Dana, who was a pal of his back in the 20s, and I, you know, that was 40 years ago, and I didn't perceive at that time that I would one day be writing a book, but she would talk about him very casually at dinner. And uh, I, I wish I had recorded what she had to say. I didn't. What was Buster's opinion of Chaplin? Did they have any kind of relationship? I know they did. Uh, he was in limelight with Chaplin. Well, Buster loved Chaplin and respected him greatly. Uh, Chaplin was a big ego. I think that he kind of looked down on Buster, but I think Chaplin looked down on all other comedians, pretty much. <laughs> he just looked down on everybody. But uh, uh, comedians were not generous with each other back then. They were not. They were catty back in those days. No, man. no, no, of course. But um, uh, no, th there was mutual respect as far as Chaplin could muster respect for another comedian. I respected Keaton. Uh, but uh, Keaton, Keaton was very fond of Chaplin. And when Keaton was later asked about that gig with uh, Chaplin on Limelight, um, he said, uh, he said, oh, old homework. He just had a great time with Chaplin doing that sequence. And uh, when Keaton's new agent said, well, you know, Chaplin was really kind of was stingy with the compensation on that gig. And, and uh, Keaton said, I would have done it for free. And he, he meant it. And lucky us that it exists, you know. Oh, yeah. Whenever else can you imagine the two greatest silent film comedians getting together on stage for eight minutes and doing a, a bit like that it's just and they were just working from a from an outline the chaplain scribbled out improvising as much as they possibly could and uh then chaplain got into the cutting room and cut two-thirds of it away but uh what's left is brilliant which is what keaton used to do all the time too oh yeah no they, they were they were absolutely ruthless when it came to cutting things and uh they really were uh, a lot of comedy is created in the editing room of course and uh and uh, and there, Variety watched Keaton, covered Keaton when he was making and testing uh, Sherlock Jr. And they would take it out for preview, bring it back, cut it, reshoot some things, take it out again, cut it, you know, do some other things with it. And when they finally finished with it, it was barely 40 minutes long. But that's what we have today. And every frame of it is is priceless. Sherlock Jr., I was one of the early ones I fell in love with too. It is still one of my favorite films. Um, it just transports you. You know, it's pure Keaton, Sherlock Jr., this, that fantasy. Do you have any favorite Keaton films yourself? Yeah, I like Our Hospitality a great deal. Um, I hadn't seen that before I tried the started on the book, and uh, it just bowled me over. I think of it as one of the most remarkable feature debuts for a uh a filmmaker uh, in the annals of uh, cinema. Yeah, it really is his feature debut as opposed to The Three Ages, which yes, technically yeah. is, but he even admits it's like three two-reelers, right? And the control and the development of our hospitality, I mean, and it works It works so beautifully in front of an audience. It's, that is a genuine feature. And when I say it's one of the more astounding uh, debuts, I'm thinking Preston Sturges, Billy Wilder, John Huston, uh, Oh, let's say Orson Welles also, you know, just to throw him in. And uh, uh, it's, as, it's as good in its own way as theirs were. And it is just a remarkable achievement. I'm also very fond of Go West. And uh, that's one that you're not expecting because you, you think, okay, we're going to see a 
Western parody here and Westerns were getting classier in those days with the iron horse and uh, uh, the like, but uh, the covered wagon was the other big one at the time. And, um, and what he gives you is something a little bit different than what you're expecting. It's, it's the, um, it, the, the Western parody aspects are there, but uh, you get this relationship between uh, Buster's character and this little Jersey cow and uh, they're both outcasts and uh, this is their story. And uh, it's a very affecting one, I think. And uh, uh, Carl Sandburg, the great poet was moonlighting as a movie critic in Chicago when Go West came out. And he was really taken with that film. And he said in his review that, uh, uh, it will likely leave indelible memories in the mind of the viewer. And uh, he meant it. it. It was really something different and special. And uh, I'm delighted to be uh, uh, showing it to people here in Los Angeles today and very soon in New York City. That's awesome. Let me ask you, Jim, why do you think Keaton still resonates with us? Because I think we can we have an appreciation for Chaplin, but... I don't know if I can sit through a Chaplin film. You know, I can watch pieces of it. I think there are some. Certainly City Lights I can, you know. Modern Times, of course, too, you know. But some of his early stuff, I watch it and I have appreciation for it. But I don't laugh as much as... Like, I can watch Keaton films and still laugh, you know. Why do you think he endures so much? I, I think because he really understood the medium. And what he gives you is a fully formed uh, piece of work, Uh it, it, Chaplin is so Chaplin centric that if you don't relate to Chaplin or his character, you're out in the cold. Buster gives you a lot more to see, understand, think about, uh, connect with. And I think that's the basic part of it. Uh, he was also a modern filmmaker. Um, getting back to his philosophy about logic and in demented situations and uh uh, in in some ways, a genuine surrealist. And uh, you, when you look at Sherlock Jr. or some of the others, uh, uh, well, look at uh, the Playhouse again, you know, all those people and their old Buster Keaton or uh, Cops, uh, another one. He takes he takes the medium and uh, stands it on its ear. And I, I think that's I think that's important. And uh, all the great art, all the great artists, the ones that we celebrate today. There's there's a real modern aspect to their work, and I think that's true of Buster as well. Jim, thanks so much for uh, for being with me today. As I tell people, about it, I just love Keaton. If you're not familiar with Buster Keaton, where, where can people just find his movies online? Are they findable? Yeah, they are findable online. They're on YouTube. They're all out of copyright now. And uh, so you can go on YouTube, see all of his short subjects and most of the Arbuckles and all of his features and... Uh, uh, you can start to appreciate uh, what you've been missing. Let's put it that And way. then when you want to graduate to the next level, collect them, guys. They're available on DVD. There's some box sets. There's some wonderful box sets of Keaton out there with commentary and things like that. There's a, was it Bogdanovich who just did the special on Keaton last yeah, year? Yeah, it's called uh, The Great Buster. And, the Great uh, Buster is a, is a wonderful special about Keaton. And if you're, if you're a budding filmmaker... Really watch that, guys. It's really, really good. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, Jim. What we're we gonna? No, say? no, no. That's that's okay. I, I'm one of the talking heads, and it's it's funny though. Uh, when he called me, I I knew that I we we had the same editor at Knopf, and he was going to do this thing, and he called me, and he said, uh, "I can't." I, they originally his his uh, assistant had originally called me, and I was doing the book in chronological order, and I was only up to the vaudeville period, and so he said Peter would like you to go on camera. I said. 
I'm not there yet. I don't know the material. So she, she said, oh, okay. And two days later, the phone rang. It's Peter. And he said, Jim, can you help me out here? And I said, Peter, I'm not there yet. I don't know the material. I'll make a fool of myself and wreck your film. And he said, can you come in on Tuesday? So um, I went in, but I spent four days cramming for this exam. And I ran some of the features at, 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 at high speed just to see what was in them. And that is not a good introduction to a film you've never seen before. But fortunately, as with cramming for an exam, I forgot everything the next day. So uh, I, I went back and saw them in order and I was very happy to have done so. When you were doing this research, able to sit with an audience for any of these? Did you experience any with an audience or did you just watch it by yourself? I, I had to watch by myself in most cases. I did see the general with an audience and a, a symphony orchestra, uh, which was a great experience. Uh, uh, at the Cinematheque this week, I saw our, our hospitality for the first time with an audience. Uh, there's always an added dimension when you see something like this with an audience. They were meant to be seen uh, by an audience with live music and on the big screen. And uh, and I, I cherish those occasions when they can happen. Uh, and I recommend for anybody who has any curiosity about these films at all, try to see them with an audience, try to see them in a theatrical setting and you'll experience them the way that audiences did 100 years ago, and you'll enjoy them just as much. Well said. Thank you so much, Jim. Um, I look forward to meeting you in person. And guys, please go see Buster Keaton. Just go do it. We need some laughs these days, and it endures. It's 100 years later, but it's still good stuff. Good cinema is good cinema. What can I tell you? That's true. Absolutely. Thank you, Larry. My pleasure. James Curtis, you guys, the book is Buster Keaton, A Filmmaker's Life, and uh, it is really, really enjoyable reading. Thanks again, Jim. Bye.